I'm going to be relying on my notes somewhat. No problem. No problem. The okay. comments will show up. You kind of see them. All yeah, I'll, I'll switch over when it gets to the whatever at the end. Okay, if they show up. Okay. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Anne E. Tazewell, and she just published a book, very interesting book, which I was reading through today, titled A Good Spy Leaves No Trace, Big Oil, CIA Secrets, and a Spy Daughter's Reckoning, published September 1st, 2021. And Anne Tazewell is an award-winning advocate for the environment and adventure lover. She's a married mother of three and has imported handicrafts from South America and Southeast Asia, opened a vegetarian restaurant in Virginia, been a textile artist in Key West, Florida, and for the past 20 years, 17 at the North, uh, North Carolina State University, has served as a clean energy expert. She has an MFA in creative nonfiction from Goucher College and lives in Carboro, North Carolina. And the website for this book is www.agoodspy.com. And... She can tell more about the story. It's a very interesting story about uh, spies and espionage in the Middle East. So, Anne Tazewell, are you there? Well, thank you, William, for having me on this show. I want to just correct you on the pronunciation of my name. It has a lot of silent E's in it. So it's actually pronounced Anne Tazewell. Sorry but about that. Anne Tazewell. fine, but it's spelled like Tazewell. Gotcha. Just well... For people who hadn't heard your name, can you kind of talk about your background and what kind of led you to, at this time in your life, to put together this very interesting book? Well, yeah, I'd be happy to. I grew up in Washington, D.C., a rebellious child of the 60s, who, instead of going to college, as William mentioned, I traveled around the Caribbean and South America and then opened up a vegetarian restaurant in Norfolk, Virginia. It was in Norfolk that I actually met my husband, Richard Taswell, who himself has a pretty interesting family uh, lineage. His great-great-grandfather was the governor of Virginia and his great-great-great-grandfather died at the Continental Congress. So his, his family goes way back in uh, Virginia. But I, uh, we, we, left, we left the Norfolk area shortly after we got married because I pregnant and we wanted to have uh, a home birth in Key West, Florida. So we had all three of our children in Key West, Florida. This really became a home for us. Although we live in North Carolina now, we've been here 20 years. Uh, Key West is, uh, you know, I really do consider it as an alternative home. It was uh, in Key West that I first really got tuned into the environment and I had the opportunity to start the island's first recycling program, uh, which was an all-volunteer effort that was started by other young mothers like myself. And this inspired me to go to college. I didn't go to college until I was in my mid-40s, and I got an undergraduate degree in environmental studies. And that's what prepared me to have this career that William mentioned at NC State University, which uh, for the past 17 years, I just retired from there actually in July. And I was really focused on reducing our dependency on oil, particularly in the transportation sector. It was a subject I became deeply passionate about. And so when I thought to explore my dad's life, the irony was not lost on me in that he was really on the ground floor of getting us hooked on release oil. Well, I devoted my career to trying to get us off of Middle East oil. 
Right. So as, a, as part of the process of being able to tell this story in some kind of coherent manner, I did, as William mentioned, get an MFA in creative nonfiction from Goucher College. So what inspired me to write this book was my growing fascination with how the past influences the present in sometimes mysterious ways and how the personal can also be political. I didn't really think of my dad very much while I was growing up because he unexpectedly left our family, my mother and younger brother and me when I was six years old and we were living in Beirut. And after that, I only saw him seven times before his death. What brought him back into my life and indirectly led me to write this book is a radio broadcast I heard on my way home from work one evening. I was stuck in traffic on Interstate 40 in North Carolina when I heard an NPR interview of Miles Copeland III, the, the music producer. And he was talking about how he and his brother, Stuart Copeland, a drummer, had named their band The Police and kind of a nod in a loose reference to their dad, who was also called Miles Copeland and was in the CIA. Suddenly when I heard those names, I was just transported back to my childhood in Beirut, a time I really hadn't given much thought about since I was, you know, that was so long ago. But my father and James Eichelberger, uh, my father, who was James Eichelberger, had been a close friend and business partners with Miles Copeland. And I remembered playing with the Copeland kids in our palm frond uh, backyard. At least I remember it from photos I, I found. Right, so Stuart and Miles Jr., you played with in, Be in Beirut around that yeah. time. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, so hearing that NPR interview really inspired me for the first time to get on the uh, internet and search for my father. My dad had died in 1989, years before the internet was formed, um, you know, born. So that opened up a whole new world to me and really made it possible for me to write the subsequent book I, I just published. Right. And so you kind of uh, were really uh, almost a researcher trying to uncover pieces. You went through many books and talked to many people. Can you start about how, how that started off and what really started you able to trace back your, your father's career? Yeah, I'd like to think of myself as a citizen researcher because if I, if I could do it, you know, anybody can do it. And the internet is, is an amazing uh, source of, um, you know, information. And I guess also, uh, I wanna just let your listeners know, I guess I'm a pretty discerning uh, investigator because what I learned in, and I, and I must not, Apple probably doesn't fall far from the tree in the sense that my dad, I learned in my subsequent um, investigation of his life, got his start in uh, intelligence during World War II, where he was uh, serving over in Europe and, and ended up of becoming an expert in those days of what was called black and gray propaganda. Black propaganda was totally made up stories, things that would be called fake news now, whereas gray propaganda had elements of truth to it. So I'm a very discerning uh, reader, I guess you would say. I really 
encourage people to always read between the lines of anything that they're reading anywhere to really try to get at well, who, you know, who's, you know, who's trying to make a point about what. And so I, but I was very lucky when I first started investigating my dad, the, the, the first thing I did after, you know, hearing that radio uh, broadcast, that interview of Miles Copeland III talking about, you know, him and Stuart's dad, my dad's former partner, Miles Copeland, is that I went uh, and Googled him for the first time and I found this amazing website. It's no longer up, unfortunately, but it was uh, a relational database that was made by um, spooks. That's what I found out that old spies call themselves. And what I was able to do was put in that years my father worked in the Middle East that I knew about, because I was born in Cairo, Egypt in 1954. So I knew he was working for the CIA at that point. So 54, you know, through the mid 60s. Uh, and so I put in those years and then I put in the areas and I knew he worked in both Egypt and Beirut. And then what popped up are these lines between the different people's names and the depending on the color of the lines it indicated strong relationships or you know not so strong and so i the website reiterated that my father was very close with miles copeland but also indicated that he was close with kim roosevelt who uh, turns out was my father's boss in the cia and and theodore roosevelt's grandson right so that's, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's. No, but it is interesting. So your dad had very close ties to well-known kind of Intel figures. Your dad's maybe not as well-known, but he's moving in pretty uh, profound circles in the yeah. post-World War II intelligence yeah. community in the Middle East. Yes. This is one of the reasons why I super regret that the manuscript my father kept telling me, I, I developed a relationship with my father really uh, later in his life. And it was primarily through letters because growing up, I think I mentioned, I only saw him seven times after he left our family. And one of the first times was after we moved to the US um, from Beirut. And that was when I was going into uh, second grade. And between second grade and uh, middle school, until I was 12, I only saw him once. And then then I became the rebellious teenager. So I wasn't really interested in you know, my family, my mother or my father. I just was interested in getting out in the world. And as I mentioned, I ended up in Key West for all those years and, uh, and had you know, my family there. And it was really having my children that kind of brought him back into my life. It's like, well, I should at least make an effort to, you know, see this guy that was my dad and introduce him to his grandchildren. And uh, he was able to meet two of our children. The third one, ironically, was born. Our son Taylor was born exactly nine months after my dad died. So I think there's some connection there, but... At any rate, I'm digressing a little bit. I, uh, but it is important because this background is an important part of the whole narrative of your book. Is of uh, your father who kind of left the family in a very, uh, I mean, Beirut was like the Casablanca of World War II. So he's in the very center of this 
leaves your family and uh, you kind of are go rediscovering him uh, through your research, right? Right. Oh, and yes, yeah, so what I was get, trying to get at, my dad in these letters, so we developed this relationship through letters, and he would always tell me about this manuscript he was writing and how he was up to 500 pages, how he was writing about everybody he had known in his whole life, and how I was sure to get a copy of this manuscript. But when he died, it wasn't apparently in his belongings. However, I have to confess, I wasn't with him, you know, nor did I go to his deathbed when I had the opportunity to, because at the time I was planning to go to Ecuador. I was helping a friend that was opening up um, a production facility for Batik, uh, importing handicrafts from there. And back in those days, I, I, mean, I just really couldn't just drop everything and fly up to uh, D.C. area where he was in the uh, Walter Reed Hospital. And so I, I missed that opportunity and another person was taking care of him. And when I called her, it was actually the daughter of my dad's girlfriend, I was taking care of him and I asked for the manuscript and she just pretty much shut the door and just said, hey, he gave chapters out here or there. You know, your dad had a drinking problem. And that was that. And I didn't think to follow up with any of the leads he had given me in these letters about other people that might have a copy. And he was a big drinker and died of cirrhosis. So he died of complications from alcohol, correct? Yes, that was one of the things. Also uh, smoking, um, third lung cancer as well. He had a lot of medical problems. So yeah. please yeah. continue. Go ahead. Please continue. Uh, I just had a lot of medical problems that. Uh, to his death so so I, it was a missed opportunity that now i regret so if there's any listeners out there thinking about um you know investigating their own family secrets i would encourage them to start now and don't wait right so you i mean you're kind of a parsing together his history through a variety of different contacts and books i found that pretty interesting that People were sending you books. You were talking to historians in the mm. Middle East. And uh, he really was kind of, he and his circle were really a part of Middle Eastern, post-World War II Middle Eastern history. Uh, yes, I would definitely say that. And, and he was on the ground floor also of really helping to facilitate our uh, addiction to Middle East oil. And that was uh, driving a lot of our policies with but other than, I know, I think directly after the war, there was a real opportunity for the United States in the Middle East to maybe, uh, you know, sing a different tune than the um, Europeans had that were there also trying to, uh, you know, gain control of this new wonderful resource oil, which really had played a profound um, role in World War II. Right. Everybody was oil powered then. And so I think by the end of the war, everybody was really hipped into like, this is a very important part of the world that we need to get a handle on. And my dad, my dad was right there at the ground floor. Right. So he actually, I think he was at the Cairo, uh, somewhere in Cairo, supporting Nasser's 
overthrow there, right? So he was involved in propaganda for the benefit of Nasser, correct? Yes, yes, because when we first uh, were there, the U.S. was very, uh, I think, supportive of Nasser. And I know, I guess from my perspective, I believe that him and that Ike, Ike is, as he was called, and Miles Copeland were very much, you know, pro Nasser and probably continued that way. But the government changed like it does. And they really didn't like his Nasser's own interest in becoming a voice for the Arabs. Nasser, he was a pan-Arabist, yeah. Pan-Arab yes. nationalist. And he wanted somebody more that he could control. But on the upside, the I mean, the big um, thing that happened while my dad was serving as uh, the economic attache to Gamal Nasser, that was for the State Department, that was his cover. He was actually you know, working at the time for the CIA. But, but leading up to the Suez crisis, which was a really big deal uh, at the time, I, my dad, I found through the research that he was really advising Eisenhower to uh, you know, not, not go the way of our allies, France and England, but to really stick up for Nasser's right to take control of the uh, Suez Canal. And uh, that, you know, he was gonna do a good job with it. And so I think, you know, for, from my point of view, it was one of the few times we, we've been on the right side of history in the Middle East by uh, our position uh, with regards to the Suez crisis. Right, so he's there at the Suez crisis, what's that, 56, I think it was? Yeah. Um, so that was a huge international, you know, conflict. I mean, it involves UK, France, US, all these people were involved in that, much like what was going on all over the Middle East. So at what point did your dad go from Egypt to Beirut? I, well, to my understanding, we lived in Beirut for a couple years. I mean, excuse me. I meant to say Cairo for a couple of years. I was born there in 1954. By 56, we moved to DC just, I think, for a few months. And then my dad was assigned to Beirut, where we lived close to uh, five years. Gotcha. So he he was there. And there's other, like, really remark, very remarkable events that took place while you were living in Beirut, correct? Yeah, yes, certainly. There was the first use of the Eisenhower Doctrine. That was in 1958. There had been a brutal murder of uh, the British-installed king in in Iraq. That's 500 miles away from Beirut. But still, uh, Eisenhower felt it necessary to have a good show of force to, I guess, from the U.S.'s point of view, prevent any, you know, more ideas of, you know, a spread of communism with regards to uh, uh, what was going on in Iraq with this military officer, uh, Abdul Karim Qasim, who brutally murdered the King Faisal and four members of his family. So Eisenhower's reaction to that was to send a number of troops into Beirut. They all landed on the 
uh, bikini-filled beaches of Beirut to much surprise, I think, from uh, the residents that were there because uh, there was no threat to Beirut at the time directly. But it's my understanding, my my mother and I were like whisked out of the country uh, on my, uh, and, you know, my dad stayed behind and, uh, you know, kept working. But uh, we, we ended up uh, back in the United States for a while. I think many people were evacuated uh, as a result of that, uh, that right. incident. But I mean, it is kind of part of the U.S. intel history because the CIA tried to install Saddam Hussein initially, right? And then he fled to to Beirut and was kind of chummy with some of the CIA agents there. Is that if I remember? No, Saddam Hussein uh, was only twenty two at the time, and my father's uh, interactions with him, uh, according to an Associated Press International article that I cite in my book. Um, was that Saddam Hussein was actually recruited by the CIA to murder Qasim, this man, this army officer, Abdul Karim Qasim, who had, the year before, murdered the uh, British-installed ruler, uh, King Faisal, and the four members of his family. So they... The U.S. was very threatened by having uh, Kasim take control of the country. He was making um, moves to nationalize the Iraqi oil industry. Uh, Iraq, I might mention, I think has the fifth largest reserves of oil in the world, and it had been controlled by an Anglo and American uh, company. And when Qasim took control, he did a lot of other social kind of progressive things. But the thing that really irked the U.S. was that, yeah, he wanted he wanted more. He wanted to give more of the profits uh, to the Iraqis and wanted to establish a national Iraq, you know, Iraqi oil company. And that was uh, a no go for the U.S. and that's why they hired Saddam Hussein. But he he botched this um, attempted murder, and then was retreated back to Beirut, where apparently uh, my dad and Miles Copeland, you know, were helping him out. So at that point, Miles, um, yeah, Saddam Hussein was just getting his start, and he was only 22. Right. So it was just shows that the CIA has been involved from the beginning with him all the way yeah. up to pretty much, you know, Iraq war. But it wasn't the only one because Kim Roosevelt was, I mean, involved in the overthrow of Mossadegh. So you can see this yeah. U.S. Anglo-American interest in maintaining the, the, the oil must flow and the locals can't get all the profit, right? Yes. Interestingly, you know, my father, when, that, when, when we moved to Beirut, he and Miles Copeland decided to open up a consulting group well, presumably still on the payroll of the CIA. And it turns out that their first uh, client was Gulf Oil, who at the time, Gulf Oil, uh, Gulf owned half of Kuwait's oil and British Petroleum owned the other half. So, uh, and ironically, when this all happened, uh, Kim Roosevelt went to work for uh, Gulf Oil, I think as either the president or vice president, maybe it was vice president, 
but he ostensibly, given that my dad and Miles Copeland had this consulting contract with Gulf Oil, Kim Roosevelt ostensibly became their boss again. He had been their boss because he was uh, with the CIA. He was head of the, you know, the operations in that whole theater um, for the CIA. And then he went to work for the private sector being Gulf uh, Oil vice president. So it's kind of a revolving door, I guess you could say. And that's not a big surprise probably when you between government and, and industry. Right. And what else did you kind of discover about your father's time there in the Middle East? Well, that I mean, one of the things I discovered is that uh, through Miles Copeland's wife, Lorraine Copeland, who I was able to establish contact with uh, through my investigation, was that it was in Beirut that uh, really kind of blew apart. Well, they, they had this potential, these successful track they were on with being consultants and perhaps still working for the CIA. But my dad ended up having an affair with uh, the third partner in their consultants group wife, and that kind of blew everything apart. And that's when my dad left my mom and my mom and my younger brother who had just been born less than a year, who was still an infant, uh, were, you know, had to move ourselves back to uh, the U.S., where I subsequently grew up in Washington, D.C. Right. So in, in Beirut, too, it was kind of like it was the old kind of, it's almost like a cliche of the hard drinking uh, Americans and also mixing with a known turncoat, Kim Philby, right? So he's mixing in that yes. group again. Yeah. Can you talk yes. about that? Sure. I'd like to imagine, uh, my, I actually imagine in the book a an occasion at the, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking out on the name. The It'll come to me though. But it is, it, there was this restaurant bar located on the Corniche that everybody- Is it St. George's? St. George's yes. Hotel. Thank you. St. George's Hotel. And they had, it, like I mentioned, right along the Corniche view of the Mediterranean. I like, I imagine a scene in the book where Saddam Hussein and my dad have a little interaction uh, there because everybody went to the St. George's Hotel. In fact, the author Saeed Aburish, who was one of my contacts, or what I called guides, I had many guides that helped me that I met through this process. I didn't actually. Um, physically meet most of them, but I felt like I got to know them through phone calls and email correspondence. But uh, Saeed Aburish, uh, his dad was the New York Times bureau chief, and he held court at the St. George's Hotel. Everybody went to the St. George's Hotel, like, you know, movie stars, um, mobsters, you know, CIA, everybody was there. And a lot, I'm sorry to interrupt, but a lot of people yeah. don't know that at that time, Beirut was beautiful. It was oh, idyllic, yeah. the French influence. Yes. Uh, it wasn't, there wasn't war. Now it's kind of like almost like holiday um, in hell in Beirut, yes. but it didn't always used to be that way. It's so sad. Yes, Paris. I mean, Beirut was known as the Paris of the Middle East throughout the 50s and 60s. It was a cosmopolitan capital of commerce education and the arts. When we lived there, 
My mom was taking art classes at the American University of Beirut, a really well-respected uh, educational uh, institution. And then she was offering these watercolor classes to her girlfriends. Well, my my father and Miles were setting up their consulting group. So it's it's a, it's just it's a real tragedy what's happened in Beirut since then. Right. So Kim Philby infiltrates. I mean, he was he was friends with James Jesus Angleton. So you just see these characters who were known, Miles Copeland. Um, so what happened next? So you kind of lost trust with your father. You moved back to the States with your mom and brother and kind of, you know, the investigation kind of continued as you got older. Right. You had more free time. What else did you kind of uncover about your dad? Well, I uncovered a number of things I kind of went back in time. One of the things that I'm most, uh, that, you know, I had a lot of disdain given my political leanings and my career and really trying to uh, wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. I had a lot of misgivings about the work my father was doing. I mean, being associated with people like Saddam Hussein and, you know, planning to and somehow support these coups that were going to end up in, you know, in some cases, murder. Very disturbing. But as I went back in time in his life, I uncovered what he was doing in World War II, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, that's where he got his start in what I call the dark arts of uh, deceit with this black and gray propaganda expertise. But I also discovered that he was uh, in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, and he, by, at, by the war's end, he was a captain of military intelligence, and he was an awarded a, or at least the French authorities tried to award him a French reconnaissance medal that was also called a medal of, uh, I think it was medal of gratitude. It, it was only. It started in World War One, this medal, and it was only given to citizens. And it was for some something heroic they did to to their help their fellow countrymen. Well, this this medal was uh, awarded to my dad, or at least they tried to award it to my dad. And I found one letter in the National Archives file uh, that was his military record indicating that they were trying to award him this medal, but they had initially spelled his name the wrong way, which was totally understandable because his last name was Eichelberger and it's a difficult name to, to spell. But that gave me a lot of understanding, um, I guess, of my father and you know what, what started him out in this path was, I believe, very altruistic and and he was a hero. And given yesterday was just Veterans Day, brought that all back front and center to me what uh, men and women do uh, serving their country and and with all the best intentions and sometimes uh, place themselves, uh, often place themselves in harm to do quite heroic things. And do you think that had kind of deleterious effects on him over, the, over time and led to him to become kind of a... Drinking a lot, would you agree with that? Yes, I don't think that's an unusual story. I mean, war and World War II in particular, or, but any war, uh, what he probably saw behind the lines, you know, because I do believe that he, this is my 
or guess, I'm not sure what he did, but because he he spoke French and German fluently. One of the little tidbits I learned about my dad from my mom is that he, he had convinced his mom in high school to pay for private French lessons. And hmm. then uh, when he graduated from college, the University of Pittsburgh in 1938, he traveled to Europe, like many people, I guess, imagine would. It's certainly what I did when I got out of, wasn't college, it was high school. I traveled to you know, the Caribbean and South America, but my dad went to Europe and he stayed in Europe until he had to come back to the US for the mandatory draft. So I think, you know, he, and the other interesting kind of thing I learned about in researching his, you know, when he was drafted was that he lifted, he, he listed his his profession or his, uh, you know, his work as an author, editor, and reporter. So, and Miles Copeland also mentions this, that my dad, you know, was writing whimsical, he called them whimsical articles for the New Yorker before the war. And that during the war, he met uh, a French poetess that he did return to, you know, when, when he left my mom for a while. All right, so it is kind of remarkable that he studied French right before World War II, so he knew kind of the two main languages of the contestants there. And then so he got recruited out of, I think it was either the OSS or some other CIC or something into the CIA, right? Yeah, I think the CIC was kind of a predecessor to the OSS, the Counterintelligence Corps. He was in the Counterintelligence Corps, and then, to my understanding... Uh, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, was later you know, formed or many, uh, there was some kind of fluidity between those two organizations. But it was from the OSS that many of the first uh, CIA members uh, came out of because the, the CIA was formed directly pretty much right after the war. But my dad at the time, was pursuing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Chicago. And that's where he met my mom, who was an uh, artist studying at the Art Institute in Chicago. So he was well on his way to a pretty lucrative career that uh, he was working also, I guess, while he was uh, on this PhD track in philosophy, he was working for J. Walter Thompson at the time, the world's largest, most successful advertising firm. And he was writing political speeches for you know, different uh, wannabe uh, politicians. When Miles Copeland came to recruit him, to join him in the CIA. And actually, it's something I, in, you know, more recently, I've kind of come to this conclusion that perhaps it was like a devil's bargain that got them to uh, both my parents to Egypt in the first place because I wasn't born until seven years after my parents were married in their hometown in her hometown of Bedford, Ohio, and so presumably they were. Why well, not presumably they were living in Chicago and my, like I said, my dad was pursuing his PhD and working for J. Walter Thompson while my mom was enjoying being an artist. And then seven years later, I'm, I'm born in, in Cairo. And I think the devil's bargain was that Miles came calling and my dad 
probably really wanted to join his friend in this, what he thought would be a very exciting and perhaps patriotic uh, career with this CIA. And my mom probably had trepidations about that. I mean, I think she was an adventurous person, but she probably maybe sensed the perhaps danger. And so the devil's bargain was that if he had agreed to her, uh, you know, to them having a child together, that if she would give his blessings to him quitting this super lucrative uh, job with J. Walter Thompson and going to work for the CIA. Right. And so, <clears throat> I mean, what happened to his career after your family, uh, after the split or the divorce? Well, that's very interesting uh, because apparently uh, everything blew apart, according to Miles Copeland, and that was reinforced by his wife, Lorraine, who's still alive. And I got to exchange several email, um, you know, exchanges with her. She was in her early 90s and living in France at her son Miles III's castle. And she was very um, clear that when the big, what she called the big bust up happened uh, in Beirut, my dad, you know, went to the States and uh, what they, well, and so did, I guess, uh, the Copelands and they were going to regroup and start another consulting group in, uh, it, in they had very posh offices at uh, one Rockefeller Plaza in New York City. And one of their partners or first, I guess, client, I think more partners, what you'd call them, it was Robert Anderson, who was the uh, treasury secretary under Eisenhower. In fact, Eisenhower wanted Robert Anderson to run for the nomination of president, uh, you know, run for the presidential ticket. But Robert Anderson decided not to do that. He wanted to pursue more kind of his financial interests. And Robert Anderson and uh, was part of this group. And my dad uh, was, they, they were gonna do a deal with, uh, for Millie's Oil my dad was sent over there i think it was to kuwait if i'm remembering correctly i'm sorry i don't have everything in front of me it's so much information but my dad was sent to um, the middle east to kind of represent this deal and collect um, some money in order to make it all happen and my dad did what he was supposed to do and then turned the check was made out to robert anderson and then, uh, but the deal fell through and then their consulting group fell apart. And uh, Lorraine talks about, she, she described it to me that for a time, Miles Copeland was, uh, just had to sell encyclopedias to you know, pay, pay their bills. Wow. And from that time forward, you know, I think my dad did some other deals. Like he said, he got a big contract to uh, make um, promotional films for different companies that were trying to establish businesses in Beirut. Because as we mentioned, Beirut was like the cosmopolitan capital of commerce in the Middle East uh, during that time. So he had a few other things going for him, but 
you know, it's difficult. It was difficult. It was difficult to post kind of spy life style. Uh, yes. Had challenges for everybody probably in that whole environment. So, I mean, there's a lot more to this book. I mean, we're at about 40 minutes. What else can people, when they get the book, what else can they expect as your investigation continues? Can you just do a quick overview? Well, I think I've covered the main points. I mean, there's a lot of information there about the social political history, particularly of um, you know, Egypt and Lebanon, the formation of OPEC. I mean, it was a very pivotal, exciting time to be in the Middle East. Uh, the OPEC was just getting launched, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And the, those Middle Eastern countries were really flexing for the first time their power and their interest in getting control of the black gold under their sands. At the same time, you know, the U.S. was trying to, uh, you know, flex its muscles and, and get as much of that business for their, you know, the home team back home. Right. And, and Anne, where is the best place to get this book? Well, you can, I uh, would suggest visiting my website at www.agoodspy.com. It's, it's available at all the outlets. So you can certainly order it right now at Amazon, or Books, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, any indie, independent bookstore. So it's readily available. Gotcha. And again, your website is www.agoodspy.com. I'll put that in the show notes. And if people want to reach out to you, they can do it through your website, correct? Yes, I'd love to hear from uh, prospective readers or, or readers that uh, you know end up uh, reading the book. Very much right. interesting. Yeah, fascinating book. Really enjoyed reading it. Again, the title is "A Good Spy Leaves No Trace: Big Oil, CIA Secrets, and the Spy Daughter's Reckoning" by Anne Taswell. Thank you so much for your time, Anne. My pleasure, William. Thank you. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. Bye. -bye.